0: Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. You may receive it. So, over the past year or so, I've um, been... Researching a little bit um, how markets uh, work, and in, in uh, specifically how the stock market works, and looking at companies and how people invest, and um, as I watch, you know, videos or I, I read articles and then comments, what I've found is that nobody likes a prediction of a bear market. A bear market is one that is going down. A bull market, one that's going up. So anybody predicting a bear market is coming or a recession is coming is not going to be popular. It doesn't matter what month of the year or what time of day, they're going to get a lot of negative feedback. Nobody wants to hear it. This stock is going to the moon, they say. You're just a, you're a naysayer or you've got a short position on the stock and you're trying to make money from the company's losses. There's something, there's some nefarious motivation here because this stock is going somewhere. And then the stock or the whole market goes down and people lose money. And then the response is, There's manipulation. Somebody is behind this. Somebody at the big hedge funds is causing us to lose money and driving this stock down. It's all rigged. And immediately, you look for a scapegoat. Everything is great. It can't go wrong. And then when it goes wrong, there's got to be a scapegoat. Who's responsible? We come to the final leg of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem that we've been following since Luke 9 when Jesus first set his face toward the city and set out for the celebration of the last Passover as he would become the Passover lamb for the people. Jesus had been warned by the Pharisees not to go to Jerusalem because Herod wanted to kill him. Yet he enters Jerusalem not In the middle of the night or through a back door, but in broad daylight and with much fanfare and celebration. We know the story well. The image of Jesus Christ riding on a donkey colt as people lay their cloaks in front of him and wave palm branches and shout Hosanna. This image is deeply printed on our minds. We have seen artistic renderings of the event and have heard the story so many times that it be, has become quite familiar to us. We're familiar with the irony of this event and its relationship to the crucifixion that will follow just days later. Perhaps we've heard that sermon point about how the same crowd that cheered him one week calls for his crucifixion just five days later. And we've heard that every year. So how do we make this familiar story strange to us again? So that we can look at it with fresh eyes and see what else is there that we can use for our spiritual sanctification. And so my desire this morning is to make this text a little bit strange because there are are quite a few details in here that we would not expect. That are, uh, if we uh, ask serious questions of the text, we would find a bit strange. This text is rich in symbolism. There are many details that force us to scratch our heads. Jesus enters Jerusalem as a king. Yes, we know that. But Jesus also comes as a prophet acting out a parable, as the Old Testament prophets so often did. So let's try to get into this text and focus in on the details that the gospel writers give us to make sense of what's going on in this story. We get the last detail provided in Luke's travel log in verses 28 and 29. All throughout the text, Jesus or, uh, Luke writing the gospel is writing uh, and situating all of the events and the miracles and the parables in the context of Jesus' uh, journey to Jerusalem. He had been traveling, traveling from north to south, and he's on the eastern side of Palestine, near the Jordan River. As he approached Jericho Jericho is to the east of Jerusalem. Remember when the Old Testament Israelites coming out of the wilderness, where do they stop first when they cross the Jordan? You have the battle of Jericho, right? So he's coming from north to south, down the east side of Palestine, along the Jordan River. And he's then going to move uh, west toward Jerusalem. So he's coming upon Jericho. That is at the end of chapter 18 of Luke where he passes the blind man who says, Son of David, have mercy on me. And he heals the blind man. And then we're told at the beginning of chapter 19, he's in Jericho. And as he's passing through Jericho, he meets Zacchaeus up in a tree. Moving from east to west, he would then come to Bethany, where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus live. And in John 11, uh, we... uh, See the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. Jesus took a while to get there, and Martha says, If you would have come quicker, my brother would not have died. But he arrives, he had been dead. Lazarus had been dead for four days by this point, and Jesus raises him from the dead in Bethany. And this story spread throughout Judea and brought a lot of attention to Jesus, so much so that the religious leaders wanted to put Lazarus to death because everybody was talking about how he had been raised from the dead. So Jesus, in light of this, hides out for a few weeks in the town of Ephraim, we are told in John eleven fifty four. 54. He then goes to Bethany again, John says, just six days before Passover, and visits Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It's here that Jesus is anointed by Mary with oil. And it's on the next day that word gets out that Jesus is in Bethany and is going to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover, and the crowds begin to form. So that's our timeline, and that's his travel log to this point. Six days before Passover, he's in Bethany with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And then the next day, he's going to set out for Jerusalem. So that would be five days before Passover. That Jesus leaves Bethany, that would be a Sunday, and heads to Jerusalem. So what I want to consider here is the ride, Christ's ride, the people's response, and Christ's remorse for the city of Jerusalem. So his ride. On the way, we're told in our story, Jesus sends two of his disciples ahead, presumably to the village of Bethphage, instructing them that there's a donkey colt tied there as they enter the village. They're to untie the colt and bring him to Jesus. And when they're asked why they're taking the cult, they are to answer that the Lord has need of him. Now, when we use the word Lord today, we use it as a name that's synonymous for God, Jesus, Christ, Lord, etc. We don't use the word as a title much anymore in our democratic egalitarian society. But we need to remember that Lord is not Jesus' name. It's his title. One of the earliest confessions of the church was the simple statement, Jesus is Lord. And this was understood in contrast to the assumption that Caesar is Lord. The early church affirmed affirmed that Jesus, the Lord, Kyrios, the Greek word, was supreme over Caesar. So Lord's a common title, not just for Caesar, but for anyone in authority. Furthermore, under the uh, Roman Empire, there was a law known as Angaria. Angaria was the compulsory service exacted by the government or a lord. If a Roman governor or official of the Roman army was on a mission, they had the ability to impress or to force into service the people's resources to accomplish that mission. So if men or supplies needed to be moved quickly as part of a, a mission, the Roman governor could out of necessity require people to turn over their wagons or their mules or whatever resources they had in order to accomplish that mission. They might get them back when they're done, but they would impress into service whatever resources were needed to accomplish that mission. So when Jesus sends his disciples to take the cult, he instructs them to answer that the Lord has need of it. And that's a sufficient answer for the owner. He understands that his colt has been impressed into service by a Lord and he de- he's, uh, does not object. It just so happens that this Lord is the Lord of glory. The disciples take off their cloaks and lay them on the colt. Jesus sits on the colt and then begins to ride it. And this is the moment that the disciples had been waiting for. This is the time when Jesus is finally going to declare himself king instead of living in the wilderness without a place to lay his head. But why is Jesus riding a donkey colt? If Jesus were to come into Jerusalem declaring war and presenting himself as the king and conquering hero, he should have been riding a horse. Riding a small donkey where you have to bend your legs just to keep your feet from dragging on the ground is hardly an image of martial prowess that you want to project if you are going to take on the Roman Empire. There are two reasons for why Jesus rides on a donkey colt. One, donkeys are ridden by those who are already king, not those who are attempting to challenge the throne. In 1 Kings 1, Solomon rides on a mule as he's announced to the people of Israel as the rightful king. 1 Kings chapter 9, Jehu rides on a colt after he has been declared king in Judea. Despite the fact that Adonijah, remember Adonijah, David's son, Solomon's brother in, in um, 1 Kings 1, despite the fact that Adonijah had attempted to usurp the throne, David had chosen Solomon as his rightful heir and successor. Solomon, then, is king. He does not need to lead an army to challenge Adonijah. Second, while riding into the city on a horse communicates a message of war, that is to ensue, riding on a donkey is a symbol of peace. If the rightful king is already king, there is no need for war. A king that already has his throne can ride in peace as Solomon did and does so on a donkey. Furthermore, we're not left merely to draw this conclusion that the donkey represents a message of peace on our own. We don't just have to use our imagination to get to this point and reference Solomon. Matthew's account of Jesus' triumphal entry leaves no doubt about what it represents by quoting Zechariah 9.9. Matthew says, this took place, this Palm Sunday event took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And then quote Zechariah, which says this. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is legitimate and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a young donkey, the foal of a female donkey. Zechariah 9.9. Now, listen to what is said in the very next verse in Zechariah as part of this prophecy. Matthew does not quote this verse, but it's the very next verse. It's from the same passage that Matthew quotes to say, Jesus is doing this, that this specific prophecy would be fulfilled. Zechariah 9.10 goes on to say this, I will remove the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be removed. Then he will announce peace to the nations. His dominion will be from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Jesus is doing what the Messiah was always supposed to do. There are many things about Jesus' ministry that were a surprise. But to quote NT Wright, Jesus fulfilled the prophecies unexpectedly, just exactly as he said he would. Unexpectedly, but just exactly as he said he would. It was the expectations of the people that he had been that had been misguided. It's not Jesus that came along inventing a new program of salvation or changing his mind about what the Old Testament prophecies really meant. And this is consistent with what Jesus had been preaching throughout Luke on his repentance tour as we've called it. His message of peace coming in to Jerusalem on a donkey has been what he has been preaching all along. Repent before it's too late. Judgment is coming. Not today, but it is coming. Believe in me. I come in peace. I'm like the father who's waiting expectantly for the return of the prodigal son. I'm like the mother hen that desires to guard her young under her wings as the fire rages. I am the son of the vineyard owner that's killed by the hired hands. Read the signs. Enter through the narrow gate while there's time. I come in peace. But there's more to the symbolism here. Jesus comes not only in peace, but as the Passover lamb. The feast of unleavened bread, which begins with Passover, lasts for just over a week. The first day of the feast is Friday, but the feast begins at sundown the night before. Friday is the first full day of Passover, but the beginning of that day begins on Thursday evening with the celebration of the Passover meal, which is what Jesus celebrated with his disciples. So the way you count the days in the In Passover, in the Hebrew uh, calendar, is that Passover actually starts would start Thursday night. That would be the first day of Passover. Jesus celebrates Passover with his disciples at the Last Supper. So, it would have been, if we go back to Exodus 12, Exodus 12 gives us the instructions for how Passover is supposed to be celebrated. And in Exodus 12, we see that it's the afternoon of the day, the day before Passover, that the lamb is slaughtered. The Passover lamb is slaughtered the day before Passover, which begins in the evening. All right? That all has to be wrapped up before the celebration of Passover begins. So that day is known as the 14th of Nisan. Nisan is the first month in the Jewish calendar. So Passover is the 15th day of Nisan. The lamb is slaughtered on the 14th day of Nisan. Now, that means the lamb would have been slaughtered on Thursday afternoon. So if you also read in Exodus 12, what happens before the lamb is slaughtered? Four days... Before the lamb is slaughtered on the 14th of Nisan, the lamb is separated from the rest of the herd. Four days before the 10th of Nisan. The lamb is consecrated. It's set apart for a special purpose. It is not going to run with the rest of the herd. It sits by itself for four days. It's chosen as The lamb that in four days will be sacrificed in order to celebrate the Passover feast. So, Jesus chooses to make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the 10th of Nisan, the day of choosing a lamb without blemish and setting it apart for celebrating the Passover meal. In entering into Jerusalem to the praises of the people, he's being identified not only as king, but as the lamb of God who will be sacrificed to take away the sins of the world. Jesus rides into Jerusalem in a demonstration of the peace that he brings. The peace is brought by his the sacrifice of himself as the lamb being set apart. There will be a time for war. God will visit Jerusalem with judgment through the Roman Empire in AD seventy, when not one stone will be left upon another. When Christ returns to earth again, it will be on a horse, not a donkey. And Revelation tells us that it will be with a sword coming out of his mouth to make war. There will be a time for war and judgment. But Christ enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and every day with a message of peace. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest Take my burden upon you. Take my yoke upon you, for my burden is light. So that is the symbolism surrounding Christ's ride into Jerusalem. Let's look at the response of the people to this prophetic demonstration. Crowds are gathering. Luke tells us that the people are praising him for the miracles and signs that Jesus had performed. John's a little more specific in telling us that it was raising Lazarus from the dead in particular that got the people's attention. There had been much speculation as to whether Jesus would show up for the Passover feast or not, given how he was on the outs with the Pharisees and they were looking to kill him. The historian, Josephus, wrote that approximately 2.7 million people attended the Feast of the Passover in the year AD 64. Now, that's about 34, 33 years ahead from where we, we are in our passage. But if we use those numbers, we can estimate that there's going to be at least 2 million people in Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover Feast. This was no small event. We can expect that the streets would be crowded, the rooms would be full, and lots of people would be there. That crowds could form pretty easily. Word of Jesus' ministry and his recent miracle of raising Lazarus would have spread quickly. If this man can raise people from the dead... Surely, he could bring liberation for Israel. So, as the crowds form and they are celebrating Christ's entry into the city, the people quote from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is one of the Hallel Psalms in the Psalter. Psalm, psalms 113 to 118 are psalms of, uh, that are songs of thanksgiving, And joy for redemption. They would have been sung all throughout the Feast of the Unleavened Bread during Passover. Here, the words of the psalm, Psalm 118, are being attributed to Jesus. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the one. This is the Messiah. What they say is true. The praise and worship given to Jesus is altogether good and appropriate. It's the natural response of human beings when confronted with the glory and power of God. Some of them have just seen a glimpse of this glory in the raising of Lazarus from the dead. This is what the signs of Jesus are for. They're given that people might respond in worship to him. If they didn't, as Jesus said, then the rocks would be forced to cry out. The weight of God's glory and the splendor of the majesty of his holiness demand worship and adoration. The contingent of Pharisees that seem to have been traveling with Jesus throughout Luke's narrative are getting a little nervous. Why don't you stop this, Jesus? This is going to get a a lot of unnecessary political attention. The last thing we need is someone upsetting the apple cart in Jerusalem with rumors that there might be a rival claimant to the throne or a rival authority to Rome. Make them stop. Jesus does no such thing. A good moral teacher, a good prophet, A good philosopher would have. But Jesus is not a good moral teacher. He's not a mental health guru. He's not a therapeutic counselor. He's not just a prophet, a philosopher, or a scholar. He's the king of kings and lord of lords and is worthy of all the praise and adoration being showered upon him in this moment and much more. And for this reason, he does not tell the people to stop and says, if they didn't, the rocks would cry out and do the same. Yet... Even as the people are driven to worship Jesus Christ as king, as he rides on this donkey colt, they still struggle with misconceptions about what Jesus has come to Jerusalem to do. Even in their praise, they don't quite get it. They cut palms to wave in his honor and celebrate his entrance. Why? Have you ever thought about that? This is the spring of the year. Month of Nisan. This is when palm branches would have been thick and green and hard to cut. I watched a history special on the Passion Narrative on TV several years ago uh, during Holy Week. And it was, I thought, a convincing point that they made. They said the gospel narratives, the timeline, must be wrong. Because the time for cutting palm branches is in the fall. And that's when the people would have been cutting palm branches. They would have cut palm branches in the fall for the Feast of Tabernacles. Toward the end of the year. That's the time to cut palm branches when they're they're drier and people would have done that. And it would make sense if it was... At the Feast of the Tabernacles, people had already had palm palm branches anyway to make their little booths. They would have done that, and that's probably what they did. They were picking up the palm branches that they had cut to make their booths during the Feast of Tabernacles. So, Jesus probably entered Jerusalem in the fall, stayed there all winter, and then the crucifixion happens in the spring, but the details are off here, they claim. The Bible's details are off. And they also added, you know, it's really strange that people one week later would, would change their tune. It makes more sense that if some, you know, some time uh, expired before the people turned on Jesus. It does make sense, right? Except that's not what Scripture tells us. Scripture gives us the days and tells exactly when this happened. Six days before Passover, Jesus went to Bethany. Five days before Passover, Jesus came to Jerusalem. So what are they doing cutting down palms in the spring to wave for Jesus? Why? This isn't something that's uh, in Scripture that, that, that you're supposed to do when the Messiah comes. Why are they cutting palms? So to understand the significance of the palms, you have to look to the book of the Apocrypha, the book of the Apocrypha, which provides some history of the Jewish nation during those intertestamental years. And it's the first book of Maccabees. See, after Alexander the Great conquered the Persian Empire and established uh, the Empire of the Greeks or the Macedonians, depending on what you want to call it, he died at a very young age. He was in his early 30s, I think 31, 32 when he died. His empire was split among his four top generals, split in four ways. One uh, portion of the empire went to a general by the name of Seleucus, and this became known as the Seleucid Empire. Now, in 167 BC, so 167 years before Christ, an emperor of the Seleucids by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes sacked Jerusalem came into the city and desecrated the temple by offering a pig on the altar. A pig, you know, which is an unclean animal, offers a pig on the altar in the temple to Zeus. This sparked a revolt in Jerusalem, led by a priest named Mattathias. And this is known as the Maccabean Revolt, because after Mattathias died, it was led by his son, Judas Maccabeus. It's for whom the, book, the first book and second book of Maccabees in the Apocrypha are named. Judas Maccabeus led a guerrilla war against the Seleucids. And after three years, he was successful in driving them from Judea and restoring the desecrated temple. He was welcomed back into Jerusalem after his defeat of the Seleucids in triumph with the waving of palm branches. We get this from the first book of Maccabees, chapter 13, verse 51. Palm branches became a symbol associated with victory and liberation. The people celebrated Israel's independence from foreign domination with the waving of palm branches. As Jesus enters the city on the donkey, he's being celebrated as the new liberator, the next Judas Maccabeus. Except this time, he's not just a priest like Maccabeus was, but the Messiah. He can do signs. He can raise people from the dead. So, he's the greater Maccabeus. He's here to liberate Jerusalem. In quoting Psalm 118, the people are recognizing that Jesus is the Messiah as their king and their savior. But their understanding of what the king is here to do is mistaken. Jesus is the king that has come to die for them. What they need is a king to rule, but also a king to die. Should Christ come at this point to set up his kingdom on that very day, they would all have been cast out of it. None of them would have been qualified to enter it. It would have been horrible news for them. They are in need of forgiveness and reconciliation with God. And that only comes through the atoning sacrifice of Christ. It's only through Christ's passion that they can be brought into God's presence and have communion with him. So, we've looked at the ride, the people's response. Let's look at Christ's remorse and grief over the city of Jerusalem. Now, this is uh, in the next two verses outside of the text that we read at the opening of the service today. But I want to include this because I think it helps to paint the full picture of what is going on here during the triumphal entry. Jesus doesn't just stop, the story doesn't stop with the, the entry. He expresses himself, he, there's words, he communicates. He has a message even in this. And what we find in the next two verses there in Luke, verses uh, 41 to 44, is that this is not a joyous event for Jesus. His thoughts are elsewhere. In this passage, Luke 19, verses uh, 41 through 44, we're given one of three instances in Scripture where we're told that Jesus weeps. He wept at Lazarus' tomb, John eleven thirty five. 35, remember? And according to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, Jesus wept in the garden of Gethsemane as he prayed that the Father might let the cup of death pass. And he weeps here what the disciples believe to be the high point of Jesus' ministry. He's finally getting the recognition he deserves. And he does more than just cry here. The Greek word used for weep here is different from the word used in John 11.35 at Lazarus' tomb. There, John 11.35, the word is dakairo. Which means to shed silent tears, to cry to yourself. The word used here in verse 41, chapter 19, is klaio. Hope I'm saying that right. Which means to weep aloud with uncontainable grief. Jesus is not celebrating. He's not in a celebratory mood. Jesus is wailing for the people who will reject him and crucify him. He longs to save the city, but the people are blind to who he really is and what they really need. They do not understand the things that make for peace, the text says. God is coming again to Jerusalem in judgment, and their only hope was to repent, to pick up their cross, and to follow Christ. They did not understand the things that make for peace. The prophet, who had been ceaselessly warning the people that judgment was coming and begging them to repent, did not turn out to be the king that the people hoped he would be. They could not hear and would not receive the message about entering the narrow gate, about settling their debt, about counting the costs, about taking up the cross, about recognizing themselves as lost sheep, the lost coin or the prodigal son. And when the rebellion did not materialize, the people realized they could be in some trouble. The authorities are not going to look kindly on an attempted insurrection. So what do the people do? They turn on Jesus. He becomes their scapegoat. This stock wasn't rising as they thought. They find themselves in some trouble. And they're looking for a scapegoat. By putting all of their sins and their association with this attempted rebellion on Christ, they can distance themselves. Jesus will take the blame in the fall for this attempted insurrection. He set them up. He is to blame. And as the people make Jesus the scapegoat for their political crime, God has made Jesus the scapegoat for their cosmic treason against the king of the universe. He will bear the cross, not so that political order can be maintained, as was Pilate's goal, but so that reconciliation and peace with God May be achieved. Do you understand the things that make for peace? We reenact Christ's triumphal entry this morning to remind ourselves that the message is still the same. We live in a time of grace and forbearance. God's message to us and to the world is a message of peace. Do you understand the things that make for peace? Do you have peace with God? Come to him who's gentle and lowly. He will give you rest. He offers peace and forgiveness. Repent before it's too late. Let us pray. Lord, we are once again humbled by the humiliation of your son who did not think equality with God was a thing to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation, took on the form of a servant, came to bring peace to rebellious sinners such as ourselves. we recognize that we likely too would have been in that crowd giving praise to Christ maybe, but also welcoming him as a king without a cross. Lord, we recognize this morning that our deepest need is for peace with God, and that only can come through your Son. And so, Lord, give us a spirit of humility and of repentance as we wait and celebrate this next week where we will relive your death and resurrection together. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our reflective hymn is number 107. All glory, laud, and honor.